You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Oh, good evening all, and good to be with you again, and uh, to make our progress through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, so uh, having the other Sunday evening finished off 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to just flow on into 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses together, 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 to 10. <clears throat> And uh, we're going to read them, and uh, then I've got a question or two for you. So Paul has been writing about uh, enduring in his ministry of the gospel, he and his companions, uh, and uh, they have endured a great deal. Uh, They feel very much their weakness What they're carrying is the wonderful treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And uh, the contrast between what they carry and themselves, the carriers, is so great that Paul has quite a bit in the middle of the chapter on what it means to be a a jar of clay. And so from verse 8 onwards, he's talking about the kind of things that they've had to endure in the gospel ministry, um, but it hasn't put them off at all. And as he writes about what helps him endure, um, he ends up in the end of chapter 4 looking ahead and saying, well, because of what our sufferings are working for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that far exceeds them all, what they are working for us um, means that they are just light and momentary. But one day we will receive this eternal weight of glory. Uh, because of these sufferings that we've endured. So he ends chapter 4 looking ahead to the next life. Uh, And so we just need to to keep that in mind as we pick up in chapter 5 now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and will prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
Well, what's your house like? Um, is your house substantial? Fine, Dundee, sandstone, maybe cut on the counter bit, but it's, so it spalls, but it's pretty good stuff, and it's not gonna, it's not gonna fall down in the next storm. I think we've just had Jane, haven't we? Or whatever it was. Is, is the eye coming next? I don't know. Whatever the next one that's going to come across. Um, there's a world of difference between living on a hillside in a tent and living in a substantial mansion. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have ever dwelt for very long in a tent. Um, but... The novelty wears off quite quickly. Um, like some of you, perhaps when I was when I, when I were a lad, uh, when I were a nipper, um, I thought it'd be great fun to spend the night outside in the tent in the back garden, and uh, probably made it through about half the evening before going back inside. Um, the tent flaps around. You hear stuff that you don't normally hear. If you touch the sides, the rain comes in when it's raining, which it usually is. And uh, it's cramped. Stuff doesn't dry out very readily in a tent. The ground underneath you is cold and the damp rises through. And it's just, you know, the novelty does wear off. Whereas if you're living in a huge mansion uh, with lots of good central heating in it, uh, so it's not a drafty old pile, then you've got space. And when the storms come, you might hear a window rattle here and there, but basically you know you're safe and secure, and it's permanent, and it's not going to fall down. Last week, um, I was on a course down at Henley-on-Thames, which is dead posh down there, and um, it was very nice indeed, Henley Business School. Henley Business School is um, based in a, a beautiful, beautiful white mansion that, with lawns that run down to the River Thames, and it was a, because it was down there, it was warm, and uh, the sun was out. It was just bliss. And all along the, the, from Henley, as you drive along by the river um, to this place and beyond Medenham and all those places, it's just huge, like massive, massive properties. And they've all got histories. Um, Greenlands, which is the name of the building that Henley Business School is in, um, Hitler wanted Greenlands for his out-of-London country residence kind of thing. And, and he didn't get it, of course, because he lost. And uh, it's just, it's beautiful. Now, Paul says, as he looks ahead, he said, we've got this feeling that we're not really at home. We're, we're not where we should be. This place is not our home. We're only passing through. And as he talks about uh, this life, as he's coming in off of what we've got as chapter 4, he's, he's thinking very realistically and very materially about his body. So before we look at anything else, I just want to say, the Bible is not shy about the body. And the kind of great Christian life that the Bible talks about is a very physical, this world, real bodily life. We are tempted sometimes to think that we are most spiritual when we're away off on another planet or when we're having, you know, drifty thoughts and lofty thoughts. 
But actually, the test of how close we are walking with God, the test of how real he is to us, the test of how much we love the world that he loves so much that he sent his son, is what we do with our bodies. Um, Paul talks about um, him in Philippians, about you know, whether he lives or he dies. What he really wants is that Christ is exalted in this body. In Romans uh, 6, he talks about our bodies being given to us as instruments of righteousness. Your body is the only thing you've got at the end of the day. The only thing that you've got to serve God with. To live to his glory in this world. To be fruitful in this world. Everything else is an add-on. Your body is it. So the Christian life is is not anti the body. And a really good Christian life is, is something that is done. Not just something that is felt and thought, though those things are part of what it means to have a body as well. So we don't want to slip as Christians into a kind of a Cartesian dualism. So you'd be familiar, perhaps, some of you, with, with uh, René Descartes and uh, his uh, desire for some certainty. Uh, and uh, in his discourses on method, uh, in uh, discourse number six, he looks for what is certain. And so he does this sort of programmatic doubt thing. Everything beyond his body he doubts. Res extendens, extended things. And he doubts, well, maybe that doesn't exist. Maybe I'm perceiving, perceiving this wrongly. Maybe, maybe the microphone doesn't quite exist. Maybe the, you know, the pillars there and the gallery and the clock. Well, the clock definitely doesn't exist. Um, you know, again, it's, it's all, maybe it's just imagination. Maybe it's all out there. And then my body, well, I've got sensations about it. Maybe that's just my imagination too. And he goes in and in and in on himself. And he comes up with this conclusion that the only thing he can be certain of is res cogitans, the thinking thing. And so he comes out with his, with his very famous cogito ego sum. I think, therefore I am, which is, you know, every schoolboy knows is a logical error because all you can really say is, I think, therefore there is thought. That's another matter. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing that right at the end of his line he gets it wrong. But anyway. Now, in doing that, what Descartes set up was a dualism between your mind and your body. And because he so valued your reasoning and your thinking stuff, then um, what was done with that, and this was never Descartes' intention, you know, just make sure as you go through life that you're fair to Descartes, okay? Um, it was never his intention to produce a thing called rationalism. Descartes genuinely wanted to know what he could serve God with. He was a believing man. But what people did with the mind being the only thing you can be really certain about and sure of was to produce a thing called rationalism so the only thing that gives you certainty is the thing that you can sort out and express rationally logically the the pits of that was a bunch called the logical positivists in the Vienna Circle um, uh, in, in uh, in sort of interwar 
um, Austria uh, and, and Germany. Everything else you would doubt. But pure thought, logic, rationality, that was the thing. And so because that acquired high value in the West, um, then, and because as Christians, we are inevitably to some degree the product of the culture in which we've grown up, then it's perhaps on the wane a little bit now in our postmodern days, but we have placed culturally a very high value on your thinking and your reason and your rationality. Now, one of the problems with that is that as Christians, we've become extremely suspicious, or there's a there's sort of a general Christian cultural suspicion about what we feel. And a, a sort of a, a kind of a Christian cultural institutional departure from the world around us. And not only have we been somewhat crippled in our mission, just thinking of the, of, of the conference, not only have we been somewhat crippled in our mission culturally for, for a good long while in the church in the West by a sacred-secular divide, we've been similarly crippled by a mind-body dualism because we've become disengaged from real physical world around us as if it was more spiritual to withdraw from that as if somehow or other there was something less spiritual about the material world which you only need to think about for a moment to see is absolutely bonkers because who made it and for whose glory did he make it if all things were made by him and for him, Colossians 1, then how did we ever get into the situation where we regard the material, physical world around us as somehow or another less spiritual than having spiritual thoughts? Now, as far as Paul is concerned, um, that, that, that's just, as far as the Bible is concerned, what we do with our bodies is really important. And Paul here is talking about this earthly tent meaning his body. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. I'm going to serve God with this body. I will, I will give everything in this world for serving God for the purposes of his glory. We're going to see it next time I'm with you as we look from 11 onwards. I'm going to do it even though, going back to four, it means I'm hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I'm going to serve God with every fiber of my being muscle, sinew, bone, the lot. And when I've done that, because this body is passing, because this body is about as permanent as a tent, then I know the day will come when I'll live in a mansion, when I'll live in a solid house, a building that is from God a new body, 
an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Something that won't pass away, that will never be destroyed. So here is Paul um, contrasting the two houses, contrasting life before death and life after death for the believer, contrasting the, um, the experience of being in this physical body with all its aches and pains and limitations and weaknesses over against what lies ahead. So, uh, with that in mind, let's just read again um, the first five verses and uh, sort of uh, draw out of those, by God's grace, some of what's there. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, that is before we receive that building from God, that eternal house, meanwhile, now, here on earth in Dundee, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly body because when we are clothed we will not be found naked for while we are in this tent we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come now in its context, what's the gist of, of, of what he's saying? He's saying, this life is not the only one. You do live twice. This is not a YOLO word. You only, world, you only live once. Y-L-O, Y-O-L-O. So you don't live in this life as if it is the permanent one, the main deal, the place where you're going to have the best life. You don't live with bodily comfort, bodily protection, bodily preservation, bodily obsessions because there's another one coming. At its best, this is just a tent that you're in for a short time. It's the first thing to get. Now that's very countercultural for us because the body is an obsession now. In fact, it's an idol. What we do with health products, health advertising, the way that the health service has become like another place you go to um, as a customer to demand whatever you want. Those of you who are GPs or work in GP, you will know, or, or if you've got a wife who's a nurse practitioner like I have, you'll know that basically most people coming in that she's going to see want some antibiotics. Just give me antibiotics and go away. And if she says no, then it's like, you know, she's a, she, she's a, a shopkeeper who's just refused to sell a product. If I want antibiotics, it's your job to give me the antibiotics. Because you know, kind of, we've got this obsession about what our rights are and what our bodies need. And beauty products sell like obscene amounts of money are spent on cosmetics and beauty products, not by most men as is visibly plain to see. Uh, we spend a little bit of our money on shaving products and you know the odd bit of stuff afterwards, but that's about as far as it goes. Or we play safe with these bodies. And we assume that it is what we are here for 
to become as comfortable as possible with these bodies. And so we pursue the cultural values of acquiring more and more, becoming more and more comfortable, increasing our sense of physical security and well-being. And so we find ourselves giving our lives to what is essentially just the comfort of the body. And having, having been around the block a few times now in Christian ministry, I, I, I have seen Christian after Christian, young Christian couple after young Christian couple, Go through what you're supposed to do, which is you kind of, you know, go and get a degree, something like that, and then you settle into comfortable, deliberately, in a cherished sort of way, basically comfy middle class Christianity in the UK. And 10, 15 years down the line, move into a big house and you're going to be there whilst you have your kids and stay there for you know, the rest of their lives and your life and all that kind of thing. And you may indeed even have a Labrador jumping in and out the back of your Volvo estate. I've got a Volvo, so we don't have a Labrador. We've got a flat coat retriever who's totally mental, but there we are. And what's happened is that the cutting edge of your witness has gone. Church going is what you've got. Radical Christianity has just dulled down. And it becomes a priority for you to stay comfy. Comfort is not wrong, but it's become your priority. And that is wrong. And so what Paul has been writing about, being hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, seems nuts. Or seems fine for some, but not normal. So when Paul says, now we, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. What that, what that is, does is it strikes at the very heart of a mistake that we can find ourselves lulled into of thinking that in actual fact, this is the building. This is the building. This is the thing that must not be shaken. This is the thing that we have to hang on to. This is the thing that we have to decorate and make as comfy as possible. This is the thing that really matters. And what we lose, as well as that cutting edge of our witness, that radical countercultural difference in our society, what we lose is living for heaven. Heaven just recedes. So we become as Christians almost as averse to and embarrassed by and running away from death as a non-Christian. So even as Christians, we can find ourselves thinking that the last thing that must happen is that a person dies. 
So as one Christian speaker was um, at a conference I was at was saying that, that um, his wife had died and uh, a year or so later he met uh, somebody that they'd known uh, together a good few years before that and um, he'd said, oh yes, my wife died about a year ago. And then the, the guy uh, said, started to say, oh, I'm very sorry. To hear. And then he said to check himself, I can't say I'm sorry because she's gone to heaven. Um, so he, he sort of got halfway through saying, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that, and then kind of checked himself, uh, and then realized that he couldn't say the opposite was, which was, oh, I'm glad. <laughs> so he got a bit stuffed with that one. Um, we've got this, this, this purely cultural feeling that somehow or another, Death, we know it's an aberration. We know that it is a judgment from God. We know that, that death is something that sin brought in. All those things we've got in our heads. Yes, that's fine. But we cannot live as Christians thinking that this life is it. And therefore must be as comfortable as possible. And somehow or another, death is just like the most awful thing that can happen to us. Because we lose sight of the resurrection. We lose sight of the fact that there is a heavenly body. We actually start believing that what is only a tent is supposed to be a mansion. And Paul says, actually, we can do all this stuff in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because we know, well, he's going to get to it eventually, isn't he? There's, two Corinthians, there's one Corinthians, or there has been 1 Corinthians 15. And so what we get is the echo of 1 Corinthians 15. Read it with me. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, sorry. Uh, let's read from verse for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So if you're familiar with your Bibles, where have you heard that before? It's back a few pages, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read from verse 50. Or let me read from verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Jump to 50 with me, if you will. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. That is, this perishable, body, this perishable body must be changed for the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sin? He's not scared of death. He's not living in a dread of death. 
The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. So you see, the tent is not the building. The culture around us, the world around us, our own flesh, certainly the devil, will try and make us live as Christians as if this is where all the best and greatest blessings are meant to happen. It ain't. The best is yet to come. Which actually makes it legit to groan. To groan. See, if you live with the myth that this life is supposed to be the best life, you, you, you start to think, oh, I better not complain, better not groan, all that kind of thing. You start to live this kind of false thing. But, but Paul says, no, 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 this is just a tent, you know. Get real, life in a tent ain't great. So we groan. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Go back a few pages with me to Romans, if you will, and to Romans chapter 8. Um, Let's read from Romans chapter 8 from verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Notice that preposition in us. Not to us. I mean, there will be glory revealed to us. But the real hope of heaven is that we have glory revealed to us. That is, we see Christ as he is. And therefore, glory is revealed in us. Therefore, we are made like him. For we see him as he is. Beholding will mean becoming. Beholding glory means we will become glorious in heaven. So you can't wait for the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. See the same logic as in, in our passage this evening about the Spirit being a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all, for who hopes what he already has. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself, that is the Spirit who has been given to us as the first fruits, okay, 
The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We should groan. There should be something about life here. There should be something about being in this body which is profoundly dissatisfying to us. We should not feel at home to such an extent that we view this life as being the ultimate thing. We should feel. And this isn't just the fact that as you grow older, then, you know, bits start falling off and stuff stop working and it's like aches and pains and this is Ecclesiastes chapter 12 if you're familiar with that and you know you need specs and all that kind of stuff this isn't just that you know, old age never comes alone the groaning is for something for the building for heaven So that even though we've got great peace in our hearts, even though we wait with patience, we know we're just in the waiting room. We know we're just in the place that is short-lived. And we should just increasingly long to be with Christ and long to be clothed with this body that is eternal, imperishable, incorruptible noble meanwhile we groan so having asked earlier on the question what's your house like let me ask this other question are you feeling at home here are you feeling at home here Or do you find yourself just from time to time and maybe more frequently thinking to yourself, no, this place is not my home. Even its best is flawed. Even the best ointment has a fly in it. There's somewhere else that I was made for. And so Paul says it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You were not made just for earth. And what that does for Paul is it gives him great confidence. Because this is just his tent, this is just a temporary dwelling place, this isn't really home, this isn't where the best life is going to be. Because he's groaning for the next life, because he just, you know, almost can't wait. He's not going to rush unbidden into God's presence, but he can't wait to be there, to be in heaven. Um, 
And because the Spirit has been given as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, because he knows he's going to be there, not because of his efforts, not because of his track record as an evangelist, not because of all the churches that he's planted here, there, and everywhere, not even because he's suffered a lot, but simply because God has put the Spirit in him as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance, because of that, he is just really confident and can walk by faith, not by sight. So, verses 1 to 5, where are you really at home? Uh, 6 through to 10, first point, do you have the confidence that you're going to be with Christ in heaven with that incorruptible body immortal body do you have confidence about that the bible says you can have confidence about that you should have confidence about that because you're not looking to yourself for the basis of being there. You're not going to be there in that mansion like Greenlands because you've been ever so good down here. You're not going to be there with that body in heaven for any other reason than that God has given you his spirit God has put his life within you. And that is the fruit of the cross. That is, going back to Paul's earlier language, that is the new covenant blessing that Christ has gained for you, that the Spirit is given to you, into you. I will put my Spirit in where promises God in those new covenant promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel I will put my spirit where hovering above you somewhere elusive round the corner no I will put my spirit in you in you so we are confident that we'll get there. And now we can live by faith because the Spirit has been placed in you as a deposit or an earnest, if you've got the authorized version, guaranteeing what is to come. Guaranteeing what is to come. Better than any earthly guarantee of what is to come. More secure as a guarantee than any engagement ring is that there'll be a happy marriage afterwards. More secure than any financial deposit that's put down on a house. So the Spirit is given to you as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance, guaranteeing what is to come. The down payment, if you like. And the guarantee 
doesn't rest with you either. Isn't our flesh amazing? Isn't it astonishing that we almost are more brilliantly inventive at finding things to worry about not getting to heaven over than we are about evangelism, for instance? The guarantee lies with God. How do we know that? Because it is Christ's life. The Spirit is given to us guaranteeing what is to come because Christ has died and Christ has risen. So we're always confident. We're confident and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The second part of 6 through 10 is a reality check. And you can almost sense how that follows on from what he's been writing. If this life is not the only life, so we're not supposed to live as if it is. If we're not supposed to put most value, most security, most sense of achievement, most blessing in this life, but see it all as in the next one, then that's where we should be facing, if you like, with our sense of accountability. If we know that we're going to meet the Lord, then it should be our desire to please him more than anyone else so all the other people you want to you you want to please some that we really should be pleasing if you're married spouse all those other people they're going to die too and all those people that we want to try and impress and please at work they're going to die too. All those people whose, whose favorable opinion you want. All the peer pressure around you. All the people that you want to think when they look at you, well, they're cool. Or, yeah, I want them in my group. Or, yeah, I choose them on my side. All those people, they're going to die too. But Jesus, you're going to face. And he is so wonderful that the question of what pleases him will be the the burning question. When somebody really, really important is coming to your house, um, you do all the tidying up, you clean it up, you may even redecorate. I mean, you go around some historic houses nowadays, and, and they're still as they were when the whole place was got ready for like one overnight visit from a monarch. Because the most wonderful, most important person ever is going to be there. You're going to meet them. So what they think becomes a priority. I have lived too much of my life worrying what other people will think of me. I've spent too many days and too many nights worrying if I'm going to be accepted or in with this group or that person. 
all those people will go. Quite a number of them already have. Either out of my life or out of this life altogether. But Jesus hasn't. And he never will. And one day I'll meet him. And when I meet him, whether or not I please this person or that person, or that person thought I was cool, or that person thought I was a great preacher, or even a mediocre preacher, or whatever, really won't bother. What does it matter? What will it matter? When I'm facing Jesus and seeing him in his glory and seeing him in all the beauty of his splendor, beholding him in all the beauty of his righteousness. And I'm seeing him and like he's just the ultimate. And all those other people that I was worried about as far as their opinion of me was concerned, they just cannot hold a candle to this one. At that moment, what he thinks of you will be the most important thing. So live now with that moment in view. So we make it our goal to please him, whether at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This isn't about losing your salvation. He has just written that the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So he's not saying now you're going to lose your salvation, but what you've done is going to be tested. Wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious metals. We must all appear before the judgment seat, the assessment, the assaying seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So here's a question. Again. What kind of building materials are you sending ahead? What kind of building materials are you sending ahead? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a huge challenge. Because so much, even as we're sitting here this evening... So much affects our bodies. Anything from the temperature to the hardness of the seat, these are quite soft, to an ache or a pain, a sore shoulder, or the onset of sleep. So much affects our bodies. And we see them every day. And we live in a world that is obsessed by them. But the real question for us is, are we looking ahead? Not simply looking forward to a body that will not perish. To a life that cannot be destroyed. But are we looking ahead to meeting Jesus? So that everything we do with this body pleases him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would give to us um, by your Holy Spirit in this coming week the reminders that, that may come as an encouragement to us, may come as a, a challenge to us. Remind us that this life is not the only one and is not meant to be the best one. Lord, if this coming week brings the groans and frustrations of this body, we pray that you will give us hope. If this week brings us all the temptations to live just for this body, we pray you would help us to look ahead. If this week brings us doubts, then help us to be confident and live by faith. We pray that in this coming week, Jesus might mean so much to us. And meeting him might become such a real prospect to us that we really, really want to please him. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.